Welcome to the 38th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. On June 29, 2007, the Land Stewardship Project celebrated its 25th anniversary with an event called Keeping the Land and People Together. This evening of readings and discussion featured authors Wendell Berry, Mary Rose O'Reilly, and Joe Paddock. In Ear to the Ground numbers 35, 36, and 37, we featured readings from these authors. This podcast features the first part of a panel discussion involving Barry, O'Reilly, and Paddock. During this part of the conversation, the writers fielded questions on their craft and how it relates to the theme of keeping the land and people together. Ron Cruz, who, along with Victor Ray, founded LSP in 1982, was on hand to moderate. The panel began with Cruz asking what role writers and other artists can play in bringing about an ethic of stewardship on the landscape. Joe, so I, I know you've thought about this some. Yeah, I... I... Sitting next to Wendell Berry, whom I feel has, has uh, kind of provided the image of the stewardship farmer, the good caretaker, keeper of the land in traditional senses, perhaps more than any, any other living writer. Uh, I've, I've often thought about what he found there, and I, I think often when I, when I, when I comes across my mind of something that uh, the great mythologist Joseph Campbell said, and he said that, the images of myth, and I think this leads on into story and poetry as well, are the great releasers of human energy. And uh, if you find the right myth, you will find a flow of energy in a given direction. I don't think most of us think along those lines very specifically, but I think that's in fact what's happening. And uh, as, as much as anything else, I think what the writer offers is a as a response to the utilitarian writing that you'll get with uh, modern chemtech uh, agriculture that would be very resentful of poetry intruding on what it's trying to tell the farmers of our day. And uh, so my, my feeling is, is that the writer can expand into a more holistic vision than that. Always in the back of my mind for the last 40-odd years has been... Um, the example of the treatment of the land and the people in the coal fields of eastern Kentucky. One of the early groups that opposed uh, strip mining was called the Appalachian Group to Save the Land and the People. And uh, the title, the name of that group always struck me as an insight that is absolutely accurate. And if you go there, you'll see that you can't save one without saving them both. It's a little harder to see in um, agricultural countries that this is true. But the same process is going on in the uh, farming landscapes. It's just slower, but absolute exhaustion of the land and the people, inescapably both together, is the end result of the um, industrial process. Well, airy-fairy answers are my favorite kind. And a few come to mind, but I think I will skip them and say, poetry is dead practical. 
in lots of ways. I think of it almost as a kind of science. Um, and, and poetics is dead practical. And I just want to give a commercial message for two essays of Wendell's that have been so profoundly meaningful to me just as economic treatises. And one is called Solving for Pattern. Hope some of you know that, and if not, just go get that essay, Solving for Pattern. And the other one is called The Good Sigh. Maybe people know that one. We can't say that word in Minnesota, so forgive me. Sigh, The Good Sigh, S-C-Y-T-H-E. Dead practical economic theory, the best I've ever read, and the most meaningful for the choices I've made in my life. So, airy fairy is good, but stuff going on out here that's just really profoundly useful. I was thinking of another thing I'd like to pursue, and, and starting with uh, Wendell. And that is, I can remember when we were reading the, uh, the Unsettling of America and, and talking and discussing it, and how we were also trying to create an alternative, and the, and the book makes mention of this. And I do think that one of the things that, well, while the book is still as relevant today as ever, there has been a stronger alternative sustainable agriculture developing. We can look at our own diets, for example, compared to 25 years ago and uh, what's available to us today. But at the same time, as Wendell's pointed out, there's a real question of whether a sustainable agriculture, a sustainable food system, can actually survive in an overall economy, an overall culture that doesn't share the values of sustainability. And I guess I'd like to know, Wendell, whether you've, what your feelings are about that today and if, whether there is any cause for optimism in what's going on and how you look at that 25, 30 years on. Somebody made the remark that optimism is a program, like pessimism. And it's uh, sort of a way of insisting that things will either come out wrong or come out right. And uh, so I don't like to get on the side of the optimists or the pessimists because I don't think we know how it's going to come out. What I want to come out on is the side of, uh, of hopefulness. And hopefulness, hope depends on being able to find good examples and really good um, uh, stories that get you out of the destructive paradigm. Uh, Gene Logsdon was interviewing the Amish farmer, David Klein, whose writing some of you probably know, he was about Amish economics, and he was getting his, um, the, the economic picture. He'd gotten what, uh, the income side of it, and then he got on to the expenses. And he said, now, what are the expenses? Uh, what are your expenses for cultivating your corn? Well, David said, I don't count cultivating my corn as an expense. I count it as income because I like to plow corn. <laughs> well, you see, that to me puts it together and breaks you out of the, the industrial economic paradigm. And it puts the humans and the uh, land together on the basis of affection and, and uh, pleasure. And that's got to be how they're put together. So as long as you have this um, it's not a vision, as long as you have this evidence that people are farming well and enjoying it, then you've got something 
to rest your hope on. You know, uh, when we were coming over here, we discussed a little bit what we imagined would be the outcomes of our work back in 1982, and I think we kind of vacillated between uh, a, f a foolish optimism and, and doubt that we'd accomplish much at all, and uh, I hope at least we're in the mid-ground of that in terms of what's happened in the last 25 years, and I'm pretty sure of that. I think that there's a kind of a, a yin-yang thing that happens when one theme or way of doing things pushes toward its extreme, it calls up an equal and opposite effect. And I suspect that if we look at industrial agriculture, we begin to see the response, uh, which is, I think, intensifying now uh, in terms of food production and what we're going to eat and that sort of thing. So I think you maybe have to get your back totally to the wall before big changes are made, but I think that there's an infrastructure established now that's there to take its place, perhaps, if things get bad enough and the need is truly there. Well, I guess the only thing I want to just encourage people to do is to get the word out that this is fun. And I think that a lot of what we're doing is often characterized in terms of giving up and letting go of and living so simply that our lives are very austere and colorless. And as a matter of fact, this is really joyful. And when you have a lot of stuff, it really gets in your way and it really it's really nasty. And not having a lot of stuff really makes you happy. And I think we have to spread that word and not the word of giving up. Well, uh, before we turn it over uh, to some questions from the audience, I, I'd like to know if, if any of you would like to comment on this issue of what, sort of what to take home. I know that uh, there's some, a lot of, quite a number of rural people and farmers in the crowd, but there's probably more than that who are not and who are interested in, in a sustainable food system and sustainable agriculture, but uh, are not living on a farm. And uh, what would you suggest? What can they do? I can remember uh, one of the things Wendell always said was plant a tree, as your poem said tonight, Joe. But anything else you want to add to that? Well, in this effort that we're making, it's really easy enough to get discouraged. Um, we are a minority effort so far. Uh, there's no doubt that we're on the losing side so far. And uh, it's sometimes hard to get over reading the paper. But there's some things that your mind returns to that keeps you going. One thing is that there are farmers everywhere we're doing a good job. And one of the best kept secrets is there always have been a good scattering of farmers who are doing a good job. I think now they're getting more numerous. Another thing is that all of a sudden we've got a constituency of consumers who are at least dissatisfied with what the mainstream uh, food system provides them and who at best are very knowledgeable. There's a kind of urban agrarianism that has gotten started. And the country is fairly well uh, seated with organizations like this one. Local farm organizations, land stewardship projects has its counterparts all over the country. The Southern Agricultural Working Group, 
the Quivira Coalition in the southwest, TILF in the northwest, NOFA in the northeast, uh, the Center for Rural Affairs, and so on and on. And in your worst moments, it's a good thing to have these people to think about. And I'm just so grateful uh, because the thought of them has come to me many times when I very badly needed to think of them. Thank you. I, and I have to say, uh, I remember one time in a moment of discouragement, uh, I don't remember what caused it uh, with regard to the work of the Land Stewardship Project. I talked to you about this issue, and I remember one thing you said that stuck with me. You said, well, Ron, you've got to remember you're not called to success, you're called to service. And uh, that stuck with me all my life. Uh, would uh, any of you care to comment further, or shall we take a question? Joe? One, one other thought that's come to me that given sort of the minority role that we're forced into, it's pretty easy to take on an inferiority complex. But I think it's important for us to remember the kind of the superiority of our position and carry that with us and insist on it. And uh, boy, yourself and your friends. Thank you, Joe. When we get to the majority, we really they have to start worrying about ourselves. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, I think uh, some of you probably are interested to ask a question. So, my, my name is Dale Hadler. I am a member and volunteer with Land Stewardship Project. I have a question for Mr. Barry. Uh, my mother grew up in Kenton County in northern Kentucky. Uh, the last trip she took there before her death was about seven years ago, and when she returned, she said that uh, the area had changed a lot from when she was a child. A lot of the farms were gone. A lot of the hills had been changed. Uh, the creek where her my uncles used to fish for sunfish uh, had been altered. Um, and she was really quite concerned about this. So I, my question is, uh, is there any work being done in northern uh, Kentucky to save uh, open space, farmland, that sort of thing? And if it is, uh, how effective is it in saving farmland from what... It's becoming suburban sprawl from Covington and Cincinnati. Well, something's always being done. The question of whether there's any progress being made is a, yes. a different question. And I don't know really how to assess that. Um, I don't know a way to stop urban sprawl. I don't, uh, I don't know an effective... Well, I do know a way, but I just, it's very improbable. Uh, <laughs> The way to, to stop urban sprawl and to solve a lot of other problems is to pay uh, farmers a just price for what they produce. And of course, the only way that you can do that now is um, by means of local economies, where the um, the um, farmer and the consumer can sort of divide up what's saved by cutting out the middle and all the transportation, <clears throat> packaging, advertising, and the uh, rest that goes with the conventional economy. So those efforts are started down there. I don't, I do, I don't uh, see very much happening in the municipalities, and this worries me. I've been part of an effort for years to get the city of Louisville to take note of itself as an, as an eating uh, community. And uh, 
um, I point out to them that there they sit in the middle of a well-watered, fertile landscape, and the only use they have for it apparently is to develop it. Uh, but why should you sit in a landscape like that and live like Phoenix? But you know they don't know how much they eat. This is uh, the most discouraging thing I know about the uh, governmental entities. They don't know how much they require. I don't see why this wouldn't be easy enough to find out, but nobody I've ever asked has known. How much do you people eat in Louisville? If you knew, then you could begin to think about uh, how long a radius you would need to, for Louisville to draw from, from its own uh, potentially tributary landscape. I'm Jim Vanderpool. Uh, um, you, uh, I think all three are poets. I, I think, uh, uh, or I know you all three are storytellers. And I think you all three may be essayists. And I, I do a little writing, uh, and I've written mostly essays. And uh, I just wanted to ask you, um, I, I had the chance to uh, stand up and tell some stories. Uh, uh, I told more stories than I thought I was going to tell. Uh, I mean, this was at a grazing conference a, a year or a half a year ago. And uh, I thought since that time, um, that, uh, or a question I'm asking myself, I guess, since that time, is at this point, is it more important to be doing essays or telling stories? There's not any reason we can't do both, of course, but, uh, but the, the essays uh, are a rational kind of an approach to, in a sense, tell others that don't know what's going on. That's what I try to do with my essays. But the stories strike the soul because the response in the room when I was telling the stories and in my own mind as I was remembering some of the stuff that I thought I had forgotten from 50 years ago, um, it, it strikes me as being kind of a, kind of a critical life force sort of a thing uh, that, that maybe in our um, uh, extremely depleted condition in rural America, we, we need more than the, the rational essays. And, and I'd just like to ask each of you to speak a little bit to that. Okay. Uh, as an oral historian, I thought often of how important uh, the story is and what it contains uh, and what it communicates beyond the literal essay that approach that you've discussed. Uh, I've done some work with Native Americans, and uh, oftentimes they've said that if you want to criticize somebody, tell them a story, don't hit them directly with it. And I think there's something wise about that. And uh, I'll just add one more thing. It's a thing that Mario Lopez said about stories. He's a wonderful storyteller himself and an essayist. But he, he said that when a story comes to you, care for it, Give it to people who need it. Sometimes a story is, is more important to our survival than food. Yeah. When you're not really hungry, I think there's some truth to that. <laughs> well, there's certainly a use for each. I mean, obviously. Uh, I guess I'm very interested in poetry right now because it, it has a lot of, literally this is how I think of it, earth clinging. A poem has a lot of earth clinging to it. It has a lot of kind of subconscious rootedness and so the story it tells is a story about 
the deepest layers of being human. And I feel like right now that story very much needs to be told of, of the unconscious of, of humankind. So that's a commercial for that. I don't write much fiction. Um, but on the other hand, as I said a moment ago to start out, and I just have to say this again, Wendell's essay, <laughs> Solving for Pattern, is one of the most analytical and brilliant treatises on the economic structure of one's life and how one should solve problems in the arena in which they are created, farm problems in farming ways, education problems in education ways rather than business ways. Splendid! So, there are things that need to be said in different ways, I guess. The, um, the, the question is whether you can learn anything or not, and the, um, um, you can learn something from trying a piece of, of writing of any kind, and it's a test of whether you've, what you've learned can be said or not. So all these are important uh, things, and it's, it seems to me to be wrong to be very, to, to prefer one over the other. I've been, I think, in my own uh, life and satisfaction, and I suppose, what would, you, what would I call it, mental development, <laughs> I think, that I've been well served by all those ways of writing and thinking. For more on LSP's 25th anniversary, go to www.landstewardshipproject.org and click on the About Us link. Send your comments and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also call me at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and would like to support us, Go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening.